All right, let's go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel, Daniel 9. If you don't have a Bible, the text will be up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Um, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the rooms and little racks underneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would absolutely adore for you to take one of those home. Uh, we value God's Word here. We believe it has the ability to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance. We believe it's the tool that God uses to shape us as individuals and as a body called the church. We also believe that it's the primary means by which God makes himself known to us as his creation. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, do us a favor and steal that one and go read it. It's a good thing. Uh, Daniel chapter 9. What, what if? What if I got up on this stage this morning and confessed to you some stuff? I confessed to you that I had um, manipulated some power that I had and coerced another man's wife to sleep with me. Would you think any less of me? I mean, I, yeah, the Church of Jesus is a place where grace and forgiveness is offered through repentance, absolutely, but would my star fall any? What if I um, further confessed uh, that this woman has become pregnant by this action, and in, I tried to concoct a, an elaborate scheme to get her husband to come and sleep with her and to kind of cover my tracks, but that didn't work, and so I, I had him killed? And I invited the woman into my own home to be another wife for me as a great showing of my benevolence as a leader here. Star falling any further. If you're new here, don't worry, there's no woman. <laughs> That's not my story at all, is it? Whose story is it? It's King David's story. In 2 Samuel, David is up on his rooftop, and, and Samuel says, when kings go off to battle, which tells us right away that David's not where he's supposed to be, right? All right? So he's wandering around, getting into trouble on his own rooftop. He looks down, sees a woman bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. She's on her own rooftop bathing. It wouldn't have been weird in their culture. It would have been normal. All right? He looks on her, loves, lusts after her, and says, bring her to me. His servant tries to give him an out. He says, no, 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 David, that's Bathsheba. That's Uriah's wife. Uriah is fighting a war that David should be at right now. He's in David's army. He says, no, 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 that's, that's Bathsheba. That's Uriah's wife. And David's like, no, 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 bring her to me. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant, and David's got to fix this somehow. So what does David do? He invites Uriah back from the front lines and throws a massive party in his honor. David, go home. Spend the night with your wife. You've certainly earned it. Uriah, though, won't go home. He refuses to, to enjoy a privilege that the rest of his men can't enjoy, and so he sleeps on the porch, and well, Dave's got to come up with a different plan. So he throws a second party, and this time he pulls out the good wine, like the good stuff, hoping that in a drunken stupor, Uriah would go home and cover his tracks. But again, Uriah doesn't go home. So David writes a little note. Seals it up, hands it to Uriah to give to his general. The, the command is that Uriah needs to serve in a part of the line that's guaranteed to get him killed in the next battle. When the news comes home that Uriah, in fact, is dead, David makes a grand show of inviting the poor, lonely widow into his own home. Man, it is good to be the king. Right? Right? 
Am I right? It is good to be the king. So I used to work as a youth pastor at a church in Texas. And uh, on a regular basis, we always did a Wednesday night Bible study. It was our big kind of push for the week. And uh, during our Wednesday night Bible study, I like to work through series. And uh, we would do uh, what we called the Q&A series. I would let kids ask any question they want so long as it could be answered by the Bible. And we'd spend our week looking at the answer to that question, the biblical answers, similar to what we do with our Facebook Live videos, but in long-form sermon form, right? And so um, we would do that at least once a year, sometimes more like every nine or ten months. We, we really loved it. It worked really well. It was something that we may bring here. Who knows? All right? But one of my favorite students ever, Carly Horton, once asked the question, are there any stories in the Old Testament that don't involve some terrible sin or sinner? Like, what you going with? Like, how would you answer Carly's question? You sure? Are there any stories in the Old Testament that don't involve a terrible sin or sinner? Maybe, maybe you uh, don't know much. Maybe you don't have a big church background. Maybe you don't know much about the Bible. Maybe you do and you just never really paid attention. But any kind of honest reading of the Old Testament... And it leaves you kind of jaded at who gets the title of God's faithful. I mean, let's just walk through some of the heavy hitters, right? Adam. Adam stood there and watched his wife be seduced by the serpent. He did nothing to stop it. In Genesis 3, Adam's standing there the whole time if you didn't know. He let it happen. Noah, he was faithful for a little bit, but then he got drunk and fell asleep naked in front of his kids. If you read it in the English, it seems a little innocuous. If you read it in the Hebrew, it leaves the window open that maybe something worse happened. It doesn't state it explicitly, but it's there and it's out there and you just, I don't know. What happened with Noah and his son? Noah had some problems. Abraham sold his wife into what was essentially sex slavery to save himself. Twice. You think that came back to haunt him? Isaac, his son, did it to his own wife. I just call a time out for a second. You, you think your sin doesn't have generational consequences? Think again, right? So Abraham and Isaac both failed there. Jacob, his name literally means the trickster, and he deserved that name. Every time you turn around in Jacob's story, he's two-timing somebody. Moses murdered a man through vigilante justice and then ran away. Like, get your head out of Cecil B. DeMille's story for a second. Just think biblical account. When Pharaoh hears about it, he bolts. David, as we've already learned, was a murderer and an adulterer, and that's not even some of the worst stuff in his life. And so, how do you answer Carly's question? And I mean honestly. Like, I think we could all point to some minor character that we know absolutely nothing else about in some little minor story and say, see, they don't have any problems. But I don't know if that's a fair way to answer Carly's question, is it? Like, I hope I can pull a 30-second snapshot out of my life where I'm not absolutely tanking it. Not always confident in that, but maybe. What, what about the major players? The guys that we call the heroes of the faith. The ones that we hear about in children's Bible stories, right? The cloud of witnesses. Why does it seem... Like, all their stories are full of a bunch of sinful baggage. 
In Daniel chapter 9, we see a guy that a lot of people want to point to and say, well, maybe Daniel's going to redeem us here. Maybe Daniel is going to carry the torch well. I mean, he seems like a nice guy. So if you don't know the context, this part of the story and the history of God's people, uh, the God's people have been divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the, in the south. And uh, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, has already been done away with by this point. The, we've been talking a lot during our Advent series about how Assyria was raised up to bring judgment on them. They've already done their work. But Judah, the southern kingdom, is still sinful. They're still walking in wickedness. And God's going to raise up, this time, the Babylonian empire to come in and bring judgment on them. And so uh, Daniel's story is that uh, they come in, they decimate the place, and they carry off a large number of the people into slavery all the way over into Babylon. That's the exile that you may have heard of. And so a lot of people read Daniel's story as this, just, this young kid who got carted off in all the slaves. But in Daniel chapter 9, we read these words. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, or however you pronounce that, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers, to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belong righteousness, but to us open shame. As at, that day, or as at this day, excuse me, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who were near and those who were far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who, who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything, that, anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities, gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he, do, that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. 15, and now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore... 
Our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to the pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And in the first part of verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing whose sin? And the sin of my people Israel. When you apply Carly's question, of terrible sin or sinner to the life of Daniel. At the very, very least, you have to say that innocent is not a title that Daniel would claim for himself. Daniel sees himself as a part of the problem here. Daniel's not some innocent bystander that was carted off along with the rest of the slaves. He points to his own sin and he puts it on the pile and says, yeah, that's my fault too. When you apply the question of terrible sin or sinner to the life of Daniel, well, Daniel doesn't come off innocent either. Doesn't make the cut. Okay, well, what about Joshua? Joshua was a nice guy, right? Led God's people into the promised land. God used him powerfully. I mean, as for him and his house, he's going to serve the Lord, right? Joshua, we don't know of him sleeping with another guy's wife. He doesn't murder anybody that we know about. Does what God tells him to do, right? God told him to drive out all the inhabitants of the land in the promised land, right? Does he do that? No. You know what happens after that? Joshua dies and the book of Judges happens. Two to three hundred year cycle of over and over again. God's people falling into the sinfulness of all the peoples around them that shouldn't be there. And therefore falling into slavery over and over and over and over and over and over again. Whose fault is that? Oops. So, so Joshua doesn't make the cut either. So the question that probably drives you crazy, because it's the question that drives me crazy, is this. Why is God's story so full of jerks and morons? Am I right? I mean, don't you want the story to be a little cleaner? I want the story to be a little cleaner. That's really what Carly's asking, right? I mean, we've already said here, we'll keep saying until we run out of breath, that we value God's word, that we believe it's, it's what God has given us to teach us about himself, to teach us about salvation, to teach us how to live before him. It is valuable to us. We believe that, that every word in there is intended by God for our good. And so why does he lay all of their junk bare? Like, don't you wish we had a story or two that we could point to and say, hey, it, it's possible we can do this. I desperately want an example to point to. So why does God see fit to lay all their junk out for us to see? Well, there are probably several reasons, but I think there's two massive ones that we can look at this morning. Two massive reasons why God chose, saw fit to show us all their sinfulness. First one is this. 
I think he wants us to see that the great men and women of the Bible and of the faith are actually no different than us. Romans chapter 3. Turn there with me. I think God wants us to see that the, the heroes of the faith that we call them are actually normal people. Romans 3. Text that most of you probably already know by heart. Look at verse 10. Actually, I'm going to read 9, too. It may only have 10 up there. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul quotes a couple of psalms there. Let's skip down to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul in Romans is making it absolutely clear that everyone, everyone, all people have fallen short of God's standard of holiness, right? No one is righteous. No, not one. Well, what does this mean? Well, for starters, it means that... (laughs) That when we find ourselves in a very dangerous place when we put the Old Testament faithful or anybody else up on a pedestal. Because no one does good, no, not one. And the higher we raise that pedestal, the quicker we find the skeletons in the closet. And greater their fall is, right? Do the Old Testament faithful offer us examples of good things? Absolutely. Man, I want my son, my two-year-old son, to have a trust in God when he comes up to the big challenge in his life, just like David did, right? Y'all know the story of David and Goliath. I want William Carey Woodard to have that kind of confidence in God's faithfulness. Oh, but hear me. I beg God to protect my son from having a life like David. Right? Like things didn't just clear up after... After David repented of the Bathsheba stuff, like his life didn't just get easy after that, right? Maybe you don't know the story. One of David's sons rapes one of his daughters. And courageous David does absolutely nothing about it. And so one of his other sons takes it in his own hands and kills that son. And then starts a coup that has David removed from the throne for a while. And as David is running for his life from his own son, that son, Absalom, dies in a weird, kind of tragic way. And David is restored to the throne. But David takes like a really long time to mourn about it. So much so that all of his people are like, hey, David, what's going on here? Seems like you don't really care about us. I beg, beg God to protect my children from having a life like David's. There are things about David's life that are really cool. There are things about David's life that terrify me. One of the reasons why it's bad to put guys like David or anybody else up on a pedestal is because no one does good, and eventually their downfall comes. And the bigger we built them up to be, the greater their fall will be, right? This is one of the chief reasons why you see me intentionally taking steps backwards from being the guy in charge here. 
because I know my heart well enough. It's not because I don't feel up to it or I can't handle it. No, it's because I have a very well-rounded doctrine of sin. And if the church is dependent upon one guy, man, we're all in trouble because it's coming soon. Right? So we take steps back from that. We don't let one person be the one person. But not only do we set up our heroes to fall with a bigger thud, what might be worse is that we also remove ourselves from their realities. We remove ourselves from the story. We fail to see that that when they did walk in faithfulness, despite their failures, there there were seasons of faithfulness. And we fail to see that when they were doing that, they were just doing their best to walk in obedience that day with what God gave them to do that day. Right? We fall into the rut of believing that our lives are somehow called to a lesser obedience and a lesser faithfulness. And we distance ourselves from what God called them to do. Putting Abraham and Moses or anybody else up on a pedestal actually hurts ourselves. But I told you I'd give you um, two reasons why God let us see their failures. Here's the second one. Because those guys aren't the hero of the bigger story. Those guys aren't the, bigger, the hero of the bigger story. Romans chapter 5. They're probably not even uh, the heroes of their own stories, if you want to flesh it out better. But we can talk about that later. Turn the page to Romans 5. Look at verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, he's talking about Adam there, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness uh, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so there's a whole lot going on there, but uh, and maybe one of these days we'll do a series through the book of Romans and we can flesh that out long term, okay? Uh, but for this morning, the gist of what you need to grab a hold of is this. Paul is saying that when Adam is our representative, we are all in trouble. And so we need a better representative. That Where Adam let us down, Jesus doesn't let us down. Where Adam failed immensely, Jesus succeeds completely. Where Adam fell victim to the very first sin he was tempted with, Jesus was faithful to the end. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 5. And listen, we can take a little license here. Maybe flesh out some other examples in the same theme where Noah was obedient for a season, but then found wanting toward the end, Jesus endured his task even to the point of death on a cross. Where Abraham and Isaac sold their wives into slavery to protect their own rear ends like sad little cowards, Jesus gladly did, died so that his bride could live and experience freedom. Where Moses murdered a man as a vigilante to serve his twisted and sinful sense of justice, Jesus endured the shame of a punishment as an innocent man so that perfect justice would be carried out on himself instead of on others. Where David, as the best king that Old Testament Israel ever knew, still let his people down with sinful, self-serving, and inadequate kingship, Jesus is the king who saw equality with the Father as not something to be clung to, but stepped down from his throne, emptied himself, and took on the form of a servant so that we, his people, might be served. 
where Daniel eventually had to throw his own sin just the same pile as the rest of his people. Jesus stands as the innocent outsider who makes propitiation for sin. And where Joshua failed to complete the task given to him, Jesus resolutely declares, it is finished. So a major purpose of the Old Testament is to dig the trench as deeply as possible that we need a better king. We need a more perfect lawgiver. We need a better prophet. We need them desperately, more than we need Moses and David and and all of these other guys. We need someone coming after them that doesn't have the failures they have. None of these people, despite their occasional successes, are the hero of the story. And that's good news for me. Because I know my heart well enough to know that I don't have any hope of being the hero either. How about you? I need those guys to be jerks and morons because I'm a jerk and a moron. Newsflash, so are you. To understand the gospel correctly is to understand that God chooses to save and use them both. Thank God he loves us. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God. You press into him through the glorious tool of the scriptures, right? Like Roger prayed right before we started here that we're calling you to, to jump into Bible reading plans this year. Like, some of you are doing your own thing. That's great. Some of you are going to use the tools that we're providing here. Awesome. Listen, those of you who are starting a Bible reading plan tomorrow, listen, you are not jumping into a bunch of moralized tales that will help you be a better anything. You are diving deep into a story that you are a part of and finds its ultimate satisfaction and all your longings fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. So sink your teeth into it. Maybe your response this morning is to repent of the way you've handled the scriptures. I don't know. You've been trying too long to be a David. David wasn't even a good David. He needed Jesus, and so do I. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up here to talk with you and pray with you if that's helpful for you. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. I hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. You can respond this morning, too. You respond by meeting this great king, the one whom the scriptures are ultimately about. Not just the, the major stories. No, no, no. It, it all whispers his name. You meet this king by repenting of your sin, by coming to him as Lord. We'd love to help walk you through that process. And so I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. You come forward if you need that. You don't need me, but we're here for you. God, you're good to us. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for being a God who writes a better story than I can even imagine. But your story is true. Your story is changing and moving and working things in and around me and through me. And I know my heart well enough to know that I need your help desperately. God, thank you for allowing us to see 
heinous sin of your people. Not because it was good, because I have a few heinous sins of my own. It gives me hope that you are God who saves in spite of and uses in spite of. So God, magnify your glory this morning by drawing us to yourself, by opening up new hearts to hear and know you and walk with you, God. If anybody's here this morning, would you make yourself known today? As we sing together as a church, would you call us all to respond to your word today? In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.